0: hi my name is bob hurt and i am your host of the baseball doesn't fall far from the tree podcast join us as we explore the national pastime through conversations with guests close to the game this is my invitation to you to play ball for this episode, we will be talking with my friend Bruce Markison. Bruce is an award-winning author, in addition to being the manager of digital and outreach for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Thanks for joining us today, Bruce.
1: Oh, thank you, Bob. It's good to talk to you, uh, especially in the middle of winter. We need uh, a little bit of a break from this.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, how many days till... Uh Pitchers and catchers, that's coming up, right?
1: Yeah, it's not that far away. You know, you think about it, mid-February, it's usually around where pitchers and catchers uh, report, so you're talking a little over a month away. It's really not that long
0: from now. Okay, let me start off by saying, Bruce, that uh, uh, my dream job would be to work at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and so you're living my dream. Uh, What led you to... To working at the Hall of Fame. I don't think we ever talked about that in any of our conversations. Well, Bob, it actually goes back quite a ways. It goes back to the mid
1: 1990s. It's, well, it's almost 30 years now. And I had been working in radio. I'd been hosting Sports Talk Show for a radio station in, in Utica, New York, Right. which is not too far from Cooperstown. But uh, I was getting a little bit burnt out, was on the air every day, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, hosting long shows, which I you know, enjoyed doing, but, you know, it also takes something out of you. I also was working uh, a later shift. I was working uh, three in the afternoon until 11 at night, which wasn't that easy. Right. And I think it just started to take a toll on me. And I was kind of at a point where I, I felt um, I wanted to do something different, and I really wasn't sure uh, what I wanted to do, and I remember I was driving not that far from Utica, I saw a road sign, and it said something like Cooperstown, 20 miles, 25 miles, Cooperstown is not that far from Utica, it's about, uh, I think it's about 40, 45 miles total, and it just sort of popped into my head, why don't I try to get a job at the Hall of Fame. Um, Baseball is my first love. That's really the sport I, you know, enjoy the most. Uh, I knew a man named Bill Guilfoyle, who was the Hall of Fame's public relations director. Uh, Used to be the Pirates' PR director. Very respected man in baseball. And I knew him from the radio station where I worked. We used to announce the Hall of Fame game each year. We did the play-by-play. Right or media contact there. So I set up a time to talk to him, told him that I was very interested in working at the hall. And uh, later that day, he brought me around to the head of the education department at the time, Palafond, so I met with her and uh, she really hired me on the spot to become a teacher. Uh, So that was a part-time job, but it did eventually lead to a full-time job in the research department in the library. So I did that for several years. I then transitioned over to the uh, museum programs side of things and uh, helped us put on uh, programs and presentations for the public. Then I did leave the hall for a few years, uh, did a few other things, uh, but then came back to the Hall of Fame 2013 working in the education department. And really that's been uh, my favorite job uh teaching Uh, i teach especially through distance learning uh virtual field trips so we actually worked with zoom long before anybody's ever heard of it (laughs) during the start of the pandemic uh so that's principally you know what i do now and have been doing since uh since 2013 so i've been back 10 years now at the hall
0: of fame my second stint there wow now uh do you have a a mentor Did you have a mentor? Was Bill a mentor, or is there anyone else? Well, certainly Bill would have been one of them. Uh, He was uh, a guy that I respected
1: a great deal, a real gentleman, well-respected within baseball, uh, knew a lot of people, having worked for the Pirates, having worked for the Yankees. And then he was really the primary contact the Hall of Fame had with Major League Baseball. He was the guy who would... You know, go to uh, things like playoff games, and World Series games, and put in requests for artifacts and donations. Uh, so he was somebody who was really known in baseball. I certainly learned uh, from him. Uh, you know, there have been other people uh, at the Hall of Fame. The, the guy that I first worked for was the head of our research department, uh, Tim Wiles. I certainly oh, learned a lot uh, working with uh, and, and working under Tim. So those are just a couple of the people that um, you know that I've met along the way. Uh, someone who was also helpful to me in um, in getting the job at the Hall of Fame. He actually is the one who hired me to work in the research department. That's Tom Heitz, who used to be the Hall of Fame's librarian. Uh, now Tom Tom still lives in the area. Tom lives in Fly Creek. Uh, Tim now works um, uh, elsewhere in New York State at a library. Uh, Bill Guilfoyle did pass away a few years ago. Uh, he, um, I believe, was in his, I want to say, late seventies when he died. Uh, but those are those are three people that uh, uh, certainly were very helpful to me as far as you know getting myself grounded at the Hall of Fame and kind of establishing uh, a little bit of a
0: reputation there. Hopefully a good one. You know, I was I was just thinking about uh, Bill Guilfoyle. I mean, of course, I, I knew him from the Pirates and everything, but uh, yeah. I had spoke with uh, Marty Appel, and actually Marty used to work for Bill. I don't know, if I Have did your paths cross with Marty at all, or have they? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know Marty quite well. Uh, Marty has come up several times to participate in our author series, uh, he's written, you know, many books, oh, yeah. uh, especially related to the Yankees. He's done a couple of biographies on Thurman Munson. Uh, Marty, um, as you mentioned, did uh, uh, work for the Yankees.
1: He was uh, brought in to help Bill Guilfoyle initially. Marty's first job with the Hall of Fame, he was brought in to handle and answer Mickey Mantle's mail. Yeah. All the letters that he got from fans. It was really too much uh, for uh, Mantle himself and for Bill Guilfoyle, so they brought in Marty, and that was really his first job with the Yankees was to answer uh, the letters, the many uh, hundreds of letters that Mickey Mantle received, you know, that probably were sent to Yankee Stadium at the time. This was sometime in the uh, mid to late 60s toward the latter part of Mickey's career from there. Marty became the PR director for the Yankees and uh, eventually worked uh, in the commissioner's office as well. Uh, he's done a lot of work for Topps. We've interviewed uh, Marty on some of our virtual programs for the Hall of
0: Fame as well. So, yeah, definitely Marty is somebody that um, uh, we've known quite well. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned his first job was answering uh, Mickey's uh, uh, fan mail. Because when I did interview Marty, I asked him at the end, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment in baseball? He goes, oh, well, that's easy. He says, Mickey Mantle knew my name. (laughs) I'm like, you can't get much better than that, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, Marty was very helpful to
1: Mickey and uh, has a lot of great Mantle stories, no question about it. Uh Marty is one of those great historians, uh, that's out there. He's you know, he's written numerous books, he's also a good public speaker. Yeah.
2: And uh he knows uh a lot about baseball, especially from you know the mid sixties to the current day. Still keeps in touch with people like Bill White. You know, Bill White doesn't do much right. in terms of, of media, he hasn't done an interview probably in, in many years, right? Uh,
1: but um, Marty told me on one of our programs that he uh, regularly uh, talks to Bill White, um, and of course, you know he knew Phil Rizzuto very well for a while. Marty was involved with the uh, WPIX broadcast of Yankee games, so he
0: worked with uh, Rizzuto, White, uh, Tom Seaver, I believe Frank Messer as well. So. Yeah. Uh, the, the knowledge that Marty has is pretty remarkable. You know, uh, Bill White actually lives about twenty minutes away from where I live down here. He lives in oh, wow. uh, yeah. I because I was going to try to get Bill White, isn't an, it? And then I found out, you know, through Marty and and other sources that Bill, you know, Bill doesn't do that. But he's in a place called Upper Black Eddy which is right across the Delaware down in Pennsylvania, which is not too far from me. But, um, oh
1: yeah. People that that talk about the the great broadcasters of baseball, they they don't include Bill White on that list often enough. Um, He was the the first black announcer, first black broadcaster uh, hired by the Yankees ever. And as a former player, you know, he came in and, uh, you know, initially did quite a bit of of, uh, color commentary, analysis, um, but also uh, took on uh, play-by-play responsibilities. A lot of times with former players that go to the broadcast booth, they are strictly color announcers, strictly analysts. But Bill became accomplished both as a play-by-play guy and as a color announcer. And back then, you know, you rotated between radio and TV. You know, you would do maybe three innings on TV, then three innings on radio, and then go back to the TV booth for the last three innings. So he broadcast, you know, in those two different formats, radio and TV, very different. Uh, he was a tremendously good broadcaster, very insightful. Um, very much an old-school approach to the game, which I enjoyed, and he was, in many ways, kind of the uh, the straight man to Phil Rizzuto's comedy, um, and, and Bill used to poke fun at Phil on a regular basis, made for some great theatrical television, especially when the games weren't very good, when White and Rizzuto were together in the booth. Uh, that really, that kind of carried the show beyond the game itself.
0: Yeah, I would. I was going to say, but you you just mentioned that that he was definitely uh, the the perfect complement to uh, Phil Rizzuto. I mean, I used to enjoy that also. You know, listening to those games. Now, um, all right, I was going to ask you what your favorite aspect of your job is, but you had told us that. Um, you've written several uh, baseball books. Uh, do you think you would have written all those books if uh, if you didn't work at the Hall?
1: Absolutely not. I would. I know I would not have. And I, the reason I say that, when I first interviewed with Tim Wiles to work in the Hall of Fame's research department. One of the things I, I really kind of made clear during the interview is, you know, I'm interested in, in doing baseball research and working in the library, having access to the files, but another thing I wanted to do was I wanted to write uh, baseball books, Right. and I wanted to have access to those files, so when my workday would end at 5 o'clock, I often would stay late, maybe an hour, maybe two hours, and I would... I would I would go to the files and, and start working on my book. And actually the very first book that I started writing, uh it, it ended up not being the first book published. It came out many years later because I had trouble finding a publisher. But it was my book on the nineteen seventy one pirates. I actually wrote that really? first. Really?
2: Uh yeah. I, I just I, I really couldn't find a publisher uh, maybe cuz the pirates were a small market team right. um, the, you know they'd had some good years in the early 90s but
1: started to fade a little bit after that publishers just didn't seem interested but that was the very first book i worked on and i remember using uh, a lot of the um, reference files newspaper clipping magazine article files Books at the Hall of Fame, other research, uh, research uh, materials and resources. Uh, I also did some interviews uh, with former Pirate players from my office at the Hall of Fame. Sometimes did them during lunch, sometimes did them after work. But that's that's really where it all started uh, for me. So I, I wrote that book while I worked in the library. Uh, again, it was after hours. I would come in on weekends a lot. Uh, I also um, ended up writing what turned out to be my first book, the book on the Oakland A's dynasty, the Charlie Finley years in the early '70s. Uh, that I wrote at the while working at the Hall. Also, the biography I did on Roberto Clemente. I did a young adult book on Ted Williams' career. Also, uh, a young adult book on Orlando Cepeda. So all of that happened during my time working at the Hall of Fame here in Cooperstown. And without that library, it would have been much more difficult, if not impossible,
0: for me to to write all of that. Now, with the um, the 71 Pirates, didn't you write an article before you wrote the book? There was an article on the the all-minority batting lineup? Or...
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember if, if I wrote that... Um, uh, well, I
0: definitely wrote the article before the book was published. Right. And I ended up, I did an article. it um,
2: I can't remember exactly where it appeared. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I did win um, uh, some kind of a research, uh small research award from the Society for American
1: Baseball Research. Right, right. And um, I actually went out to um, one of the... Uh, Sabre meetings and, and got the award and uh, dedicated it to Willie Stargell. Uh, but yeah, I did write. I wrote about that, uh, that all-black lineup, which at the time was something that almost nobody talked about.
0: There was very little newspaper coverage at the time, as you're probably aware. It right. happened September 1st, 1971. There was a newspaper strike in Pittsburgh. Exactly. Some of the daily papers were operating. Um, so there was very little local coverage. And as a result, very little national media picked up on it. The sporting
1: news had a small blurb on it. The Sports Illustrated uh, a magazine that came out the next week had an even smaller blurb. So there was virtually nothing said about it. I'm not sure that I was the first one to write a full-length article about yeah. the all-black lineup. Uh, I was certainly probably one of the first. There may have been a couple before me. Um, Al Oliver was a guy that I talked about, and he, he remarked to me, as he said, yeah, you're the only the second reporter who has ever asked me about this. And yeah. at the time, this was back in the, had to be late 90s, Al was kind of surprised that very few writers had shown any interest in it. And now we contrast to what happened in uh, uh, 2021, when it was the 50th anniversary of that lineup. And you couldn't turn around without seeing articles on the internet or seeing features on the MLB network that were about the all-black lineup. And at the time, there were four living players uh, still around uh, since then, Gene Kleins. Whom we did have a chance to interview for the Hall of Fame. Great guys, yeah. and then he has sadly passed away. So now we're down to three. Uh, but all four of those guys were actually brought out to a PNC Park in Pittsburgh the week of the anniversary. And there was quite a bit uh, of coverage. They were honored by the Pirates. So it, it took about 50 years, but those guys finally got their due for uh, I think of kind of an important
0: part of baseball history that for whatever reason was overlooked for decades. Well, you know what I, I mean. Like you said, I, I totally agree with you. that It was a big part of baseball history. I mean, it's sort of like a uh, uh, a Jackie Robinson on steroids kind of. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, but I'm 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 thinking about the. Uh, the Living Players, okay, you said Gene Kleins at the time, and then Dave Cash, Al Oliver, and I guess Manny then, right?
1: Yeah, those were the four, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dave Cash, who I interviewed many years earlier when I was at the Utica radio station, because Dave
0: Cash is from Utica from Right. Uh, that was that was a long time
1: ago. I must have interviewed him 30 years ago.
0: Right. So yeah, you had Cash, Klein, uh, Sanguian, and
1: Al Oliver, and um, I've met you know I've met all four. Interviewed uh, three of them. Never really did a sit down interview with Manny, but uh, certainly uh, have talked uh, to those other guys. And it, you know it, it's it is strange that it took so long for that lineup to become a big story because you think about it. You have, you know, an all-black lineup that had not happened before. Right. Hasn't really happened since. And it's that same pirate team that six weeks later goes on to win the World Series. I mean, what a great story. How, how could you, you know, yeah. how could you script it any better than that? And uh, yet, for whatever reason, the media uh, pretty much ignored it for, for years and years.
0: No, I took, well, you know how I, you know, the 71 team is my favorite, favorite, uh, Pirates team. But, um, yeah, you didn't get a chance to interview Manny. Uh, I was, I was talking to Kent DeColvey and, uh, I mentioned to other people that Manny is a very difficult person to understand. <laughs> so, uh, it might have been, uh, you know. Might have been better if you didn't interview, you know, since you didn't interview him because Manny gets to talking fast and, and, uh, like, like Kent Tacolvi was saying, he says, uh, he said, Steve Blast said about Manny, he says, he's the only guy I know that he's been, you know, he's been in the United States, you know, 50 years and his English got actually worse. <laughs> he's, he's a trip though. yeah. But. Yeah,
1: he, he, I did get to meet him. Uh, there was a, a few years back, there was a reunion in Pennsylvania, uh, set up by a friend of mine named Jim Vankoski. Uh, what he actually did was he, he set up reunions for, uh, players from the 61 Pirates, and, or I'm sorry, the 60 Pirates right. and the 71 Pirates and um, asked me to come out and speak. And uh, so I did get to meet Manny at that event. Uh, didn't really do a, a sit-down interview. Uh, the late Rennie Stennett was there. Yeah. Uh, did, I talked to him, and he told some great stories at dinner. Uh, of course, we did lose him a couple years ago. Right, right. Um, I was really shocked when I heard that, because he just seemed so lively and, and vibrant when I talked to him at that reunion. Um, so you had uh, you had Stenett and Sangian from the '71 team, and then from the '60 team there
2: was um, uh, one of the guys was Bob Friend, Okay. And I'm trying to remember for what, for some reason I'm blanking on who the
1: fourth guy was, but there was there was a fourth player. Uh, so uh, Jim Minkowski, uh, who does a lot of these kinds of events in Pennsylvania. Uh, he had set up two guys from the '60 team and two players from the '71
0: team, and that was what what fun that was. Yeah, no, I and and I've talked to a lot of people from you know players from both teams, and uh, they're definitely uh, you know forthcoming and and uh, you know. Cordial, and they're just wonderful guys to uh, talk to. I've talked to, like, you know, Vernon Law and Elroy Face, and, you know, like you said, from the 60s. Uh, and then, of course, the 71 team, I've had a chance to to talk with them. Now, what would you consider to be the book that you enjoyed writing the most? Wow, well, that's a tough question. I, you know, probably book that I did on the 80s, um, Baseball's Last Dynasty. Okay, that's the one you You won an award for that, right? Didn't you get the Seymour Medal or something from Sabre? Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I was lucky to win the, the Seymour Medal, um, and then uh, we were flown out. Uh, well, not flown out because I don't really fly, but right. uh, my wife and I drove out to Cleveland um, a few months later to uh, actually receive that award. Um, I, I loved writing that book because those A's teams uh, had something going on just about every day, and right. that was a—it was almost a day-to-day uh, a chronicle of what went on with those teams from like 1971 through 1975, and that, of course, book ended their three championships.
0: You know, I'm, I'm thinking of some, Mike. Mike Epstein was on that team, wasn't he? I'm thinking of somebody that, like you're saying, was a big name and and how he came in first. You know, came in for a short period and left. Was Mike Epstein? Remember Mike Epstein, the big oh, pal? Yeah. He he was yeah, with he Oakland. He was on the team. Uh, he, he had been on
1: the team
0: earlier, and then okay. they acquired him.
1: Uh, He was the the
2: starting first baseman, you know, primarily against right-hand pitching. Right. And then Mike Keegan was his defensive caddy. You know, Keegan was an excellent first baseman. They would
1: bring him in typically in the late innings of games where they were leading. Um, Epstein actually, he he played, he he was with the A's in 71, and then he was with them in 72. And he had a great year. He had
0: 26 home runs that year. Um Walked as much as he struck out, but, um, he, you know, he was very brash, and he clashed a little bit with Finley and ended up getting traded, um,
1: and then actually uh, went to Texas, uh, for the start of the 73 season. And, uh, ended up, you know, his career kind of finished abruptly, um, partly because of some health problems. You know, he was basically done in his
2: early 30s. Uh, he only, you know, after that great year in '72, he only had two more seasons in the major leagues, and that was it. Yeah, um, had a chance to meet him years ago. I think it was 2004. There was a Jewish baseball weekend
1: at the Hall of Fame that was organized by uh, Jeff Arnett, who um, at one time ran the education department of the Hall of Fame. And he organized this event. A number of Jewish players came in, Ron Bloomberg, Elliot Maddox, but one of them was Mike Epstein. And I had a chance to meet him at the Clark Sports Center, I actually did an interview with him, and, and, and it was a blast. I mean, he had, uh, he's a, a very intelligent guy, um, he went on to form a, a hitting school. Um, had very definite hitting philosophies, was greatly influenced by Ted Williams when he had played in Washington. Ted Williams was manager there. So, um, yeah, Epstein was, was definitely a part of that dynasty. Um, in retrospect, he you know, probably should have been there in 73 and 74, but, um, uh, again, ran afoul of Charlie Finley and ended up getting traded.
0: Yeah, Charlie uh, seemed to have a habit of doing that. You know, if he, uh, if he had a, uh, if you rubbed them the wrong way, you know, he sent you along. I mean, uh, you know, I grew, I grew up with the Oakland A's. I remember watching Now, they, it, it's funny we talk about, you know, uh, chemistry, like in the, in the uh, clubhouse and stuff, but it seems like, like you had described the fighting of, of the Oakland A's. They were almost the antithesis of, of, uh, of chemistry. Now, if you were to, you know, I'd
1: like to say they had a different kind of chemistry.
0: Okay, uh, maybe that's it. Chemistry because everybody gets along and they all like each other.
1: The A's, it was more of a, a tension, but it, it seemed to keep people energized, and they had a lot of smart players too. And, right. And you know, they they played uh, when they got on the field. They were able to play together, play the game fundamentally very sound. And they were able to put a lot of those personal differences aside for nine innings. Right. So their, their chemistry was um, kind of against the grain, against the book, but
0: somehow it worked. I mean, it, it you know, uh, it, it, if you try that today, it probably wouldn't work, especially if you tried a major market with a lot of media. But in, in Oakland, in the Bay Area in the early 70s, um, it, it somehow produced a um, one of the, the great dynasties in baseball history. Now, do you think any of uh, the way they play or the way players play? Do you think there was any uh, jealousy that was motivation, or or uh, you know wanting to outdo their their teammates, or you just think that they had a common goal? I guess. Oh, I, I, you
1: know, there were definitely egos there.
0: No yeah. Question.
2: I mean, Reggie Jackson was their best player. Right. Um, But, you know, Reggie was also known for having an ego and wanting to do things his
1: way and wanting to be the center of the attention, sometimes the center of the storm. Uh, So there's no question uh, that he was uh, a player like that. And they did have other guys like that. But they also had some glue
2: type players, too, uh, like a Joe Rudy. Yeah, Joe Rudy. One of the real nice guys in baseball. Um, and he, he got along with
1: everybody, and he was a very stable personality. So that sort of counteracted some of the egos. Uh, Catfish Hunter was, I think, a lot like Joe Rudy. Um, you know, he came from the country. Um, he um, didn't have a big ego. Um, incredibly durable pitcher, took the ball every fourth or fifth day, was the ace of their, of their stabs for a number of years. Um, somehow was able to coexist with Finley for a long time. And he was another guy that was really a glue for that team. Campy Campaneris was a guy like that. You know, there was a lot of instability at second base in the early 70s. Um, you had a lot of different players played second base. There was Dick Green and Tim Cullen and... You know, Dick Green in his earlier years had been a premier player, but by the early 70s, he was a little bit older. He didn't hit very well. So he was constantly being shuffled in and out of the lineup. So they had a revolving door at second base for most of that three-year championship window, but it was always Campanaris at shortstop. And, of course, then it was always Bando, Sal Bando at third base. So they really stabilized the left side of the infield and having campy there with his great range uh he was a, you know an excellent shortstop often served as their leadoff man
0: their top base stealer um, he was an, another really important part of that team now from the from the Oakland A's team did you how, how many people did you get a chance to interview did you get to interview any of of them for the book or
1: I did, I interviewed probably about a dozen, uh, of the players, and not necessarily the star players, I, although I did, you know, I did interview Raleigh Fingers, uh, I did talk to him, um, but some of the, I'll tell you, one of the best guys that I interviewed in terms of content that he was able
0: to give me, uh, was Don Mincher, uh, okay. first baseman. Don Mincher, um, played with the A's, uh, in the early 70s, uh, and he was actually on that
1: team in 72. Uh, he was primarily a bench player at that point, but he'd been a really good player with the Twins and Angels in the 60s. He was at the tail end of his career, um, but he was a guy that came over midway in a trade with the Texas Rangers. And um, he, um, you know, you look at his numbers, not very impressive, but you know, he, I think, brought uh, a little bit of that veteran presence to the bench. And for me, uh, he was actually the first guy I interviewed for the book. And he had so much insight, so many great stories. He told
2: me which players I should try to interview. He told me those that, you know, may not be so reliable and might not tell me the truth. Right. Um, but he, he really gave me, I, I,
1: had, I had literally done no interviews for the book. He was literally the first guy I talked to. And he was so helpful. Uh at the time he was, I think, president of the Southern League. And so he was still active in baseball, but he was he was a
0: friendly guy and uh, very, very helpful in, in terms of you know, who to talk to, what questions to ask, who to avoid. So I'm forever grateful to Don Mincher. Didn't he play for the uh Seattle Pilots the one year they were the pilots? Didn't Don Mincher That's right. Yeah.
1: He had a very good year for them. He was their all-star representative.
0: Right. First base. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, had he a- was a guy... It, it's
1: ironic that he ended up retiring after the 72 season. When he was in his mid-30s, and he was at the end of his career. But the next
2: year, uh, 73, the start of the DH, and Don Mincher was a guy who would have been perfect oh, for that yeah. role. Oh, yeah. He had been just a little bit younger. Uh, it's a guy that, um, I think would have been a productive
1: DH for somebody, BAs or somebody else, maybe a team like the Yankees, left hand power hitter, uh, good guy in the clubhouse, championship experience from his years in Minnesota, uh,
0: the, the DH, it just came around a bit too late for him. Right. Now, who, I is Don Mitcher the, the, the best interview you had, or who would you say was your best interview that you had, not just for the book, for, for you know, all your time at the hall and, and uh, you know, is there any... Well, I would say for, for the A's book, I think Mincher was the best. Okay. Um, he was really good. You know, there were some players that I tried to interview. I remember Vita Blue came to town one day, and he was participating in some kind of a small-scale old-timers game over at Doubleday Field. I tried to interview him. I told him that I was writing the book, but he, 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 for whatever reason,
1: didn't really want to talk to me or didn't want to be interviewed. So, uh, you yeah, know, I respected that decision. Right. But for the Ace Book Mincher was, was definitely the best. Uh, for the books uh, that, you know, for the book I did on the 71 pirate, the team that changed baseball, uh, Steve Blass was probably, uh, the most insightful guy. Uh, he was really good. Um, I interviewed him on the phone. I also had a chance to meet him in person. Uh, so my early years in the hall, I was still in the research department. And one
2: day Steve Blass and Dave Justy showed up, good friends. Yep, And they, um. They actually um,
1: they went on a tour of the museum, and uh, someone in the library knew that I was a fan of those pirate teams, so they arranged for me to take these guys throughout the museum and and show them the exhibits. And I got a chance to talk to both Glass and Justy, and then later I did a follow up, did a phone interview with Steve for the book, uh, but he was he was fantastic. Uh, Al Oliver was another really good one, very insightful. We talked, of course, about the all-black lineup, but talked about other things. We talked about Roberto Clemente. Um, The the one person that I would have loved to have interviewed, not just for that book, but in general, and he's a guy that I I would have loved to have met, uh, the late Doc Ellis. Oh yeah. Um, Doc Ellis was the most controversial player on those Pirates teams of the early 70s, and teams that were generally not controversial. But Doc was always stirring things up for whatever reason, sometimes for legitimate reasons, other times Doc was just being Doc. We also know by his own admission that he had, you know, a severe problem with drugs uh, for much of his career. And then um, it, it was around 1980 or so that he uh, started to change. Uh, he, he stopped using drugs. He um, really regretted the, the fact that he had become involved with this. Um, it had affected his behavior. It had affected his health. He vowed to stop drugs in final 25 or so years of his life. Doc Ellis became committed to speaking out about, you know, the problems of of drug use
2: and drug abuse, and he would speak to kids. He would go to schools, uh, and he, he traveled all around. I think he lived in Southern California
0: right. at, at the time, and he did a lot of work out there. Um, but here's a guy that you know.
1: People like to focus on, well, he pitched the no-hitter while under the influence of LSD. It's Kind of a questionable story how true that is. Um, And a lot of people have actually glorified that, which really annoys me to no end. Um, Doc Ellis was not proud of that. He was not proud of the fact that he used LSD and cocaine and these other illicit drugs. And he basically spent the last quarter century of his life trying to make amends for that trying to tell kids, you know, these are the mistakes I made, avoid them. Don't repeat these problem areas that I got myself into. And I really respect the doc for uh, for doing that. I would have loved to have talked to him about this. Um, Never did have the chance. And, of course, you know, he ended up dying. He was relatively young. He was in his early 60s. As I recall, he had liver and kidney disease. He was on a waiting list, I think, for a transplant, but never got it, and uh, you know, passed away before. um, You know, sadly, I had a chance to meet him, and it's really too bad because he was doing such good work counseling youngsters, and I think he had a a really important story to tell. So that's that's my one regret. That's the one guy from those 71 pirates that I would have loved to have met, loved to have talked to, even for five
0: minutes, but just. Never happened. You know, I had met, uh, Doc Ellis at, uh, Three Rivers Stadium. Oh, it must have been back in the early 90s and everything. And remember, remember that program called, uh, Scared Straight? You know, they had like prison. Well, I'll tell you, Doc Ellis, I, I met him, you know, shook his hand, just, you know, we said a couple words and everything, nothing, nothing in, in detail and stuff. But he had like a shaved head and he had, he had two earrings, like Mister Clean, and stuff. He was the most intimidating person <laughs> I ever saw. I could just see him. He would have been perfect for Scared Straight, but, but yeah, I I, I agree with you totally that people do uh, they do glorify that game, and uh, you know I you know Doc had Doc had a really good career. I mean, he wasn't you know he wasn't uh, just all about the uh, pitching and no hitter on LSD or anything like yeah. that I mean he was uh, in fact he was there the Pirates leading pitcher really in 71 but blast you know blast is a star shown in 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 the World Series and everything but Doc Ellis was quite a pitcher and he doesn't get credit for you know how oh, yeah b- well he had that one good year for the Yankees too right didn't he have a good year with the, oh, yeah. your Yankees yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first half of the 71 season,
0: he was just about the best pitcher in the National League. Yeah. Certainly the ace of the Pirates. Um, it seemed like he did wear down as the season progressed. He ended up pitching well over 200 innings that year. Right. Um, and that was a common thing, but um, his, his arm started to hurt in October, and he wasn't 100% healthy. And that's why he wasn't very effective in the playoffs or World Series. Luckily, Blast was and really took over as the ace. But then Doc bounced back, he had a very good 72, and, and continued to pitch well um, for the next several years. Uh, eventually was part of the uh, the uh, Willie Randolph trade. Um, uh, went to the uh, Yankees and uh, was, was terrific for them. Yeah. In uh, in 1976, you know the, the year the Yankees got back to the series, um, but you know Doc uh, clashed with George Steinbrenner. Shocker that that would happen, right? <laughs> right. um And there's a, a an in, I, I don't want to say it's an infamous quote. It, I guess it was said in in jest, but it's in uh, Sparky Lyle's book, The Bronx Zoo.
1: Right. And somebody went up to Ellis and was asking about Steinbrenner and was saying, yeah, here, George, uh, you know, George is flying in to check up on the team. And uh, Doc said to one of the other Yankees, uh, oh, you know, that's good to hear. The, the more that he
2: flies, uh, the better the chance that one of those planes will crash. Oh. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of a shocking statement but uh you know I I'm, I'm sure he was not uh, completely serious uh he was in jest, but he uh, you know he
1: and George certainly uh, clashed and he ended up lasting uh, only a little bit in the 77th season um then of course he goes to Oakland to play for Charlie Finley for a little bit go mm-hmm. figure on that <laughs> right. but you know you know doc doc was a guy I mean he said a lot of crazy things But I think he always was good-hearted, and when he was, you know, not using, when he was in his right mind, um, he did a lot. You know, he did a lot of good things. He tried to um, uh, really uh, advocate for prison reform in the early '70s. He used to visit inmates at federal penitentiaries in Pennsylvania, talking to the guys there trying to help them to get their lives straightened out, um, trying to encourage them and say, hey, you know, what are you going to do when you become a free man when your prison sentence is over? Uh, um, and he was, in, in things like that, he, um, you know, he had this whole idea of, you know, social justice and these causes that he really was concerned about, um, but he would get sidetracked because of his drug use because of his, you know, somewhat outlandish personality, um, and then his, you know, his anti-drug uh, message really became the resounding message uh, when his career came to an end. But uh, uh, you have, I think, you, you really have to admire uh, uh, some of the some of the great things that Doc uh, did. We remember him for the controversy, the conflicts,
0: but beyond or behind all that was a very decent guy. Right. No, I, I definitely agree with you with that. Okay. Who was, and, and you were saying about Steve and, uh, Dave Justy and everything that who was the coolest person you met that was visiting the Hall of Fame it was sort of, you weren't expecting to run into them, but they, I know a lot of, I know a lot of baseball people go to the Hall of Fame and I've, I've read that, you know, you mentioning, you know, people's, that you've seen who who would you say was the coolest person that you ran into that was visiting the hall of fame
1: well i think certainly blast was near the top of that
0: list right Uh, another guy that i would put up there was willie stargill oh really
2: Uh, this was yeah this was in my early years this was late 90s willie was uh actually invited not by the hall of fame put by the United States Postal Service to come out and do a talk in the Hall of Fame's Grandstand Theater to some area school kids. Right. And someone in the Hall of Fame, it
1: might have been Jeff Idelson, who at the time was our uh, PR director, he knew that I was a fan of those Pirates teams. So he arranged for me to be part of a group of Hall of Fame staffers that went to lunch with Willie. And I got a chance to meet him, and that was a major thrill. Um, I didn't know Willie was going to be there that day. I certainly didn't know that I was going to have lunch with him and get a chance to talk to him. We did talk about Clemente. And, uh, that was an absolute thrill. Um, that, so that, that was one of the, the coolest uh, encounters that I've had. Uh, in terms of, you know, I've, I've done a lot of virtual uh, interviews like you're doing with me right yeah, now. right. Uh, and some of those guys, even though it wasn't in person, um, but we, we were talking in real time, some of those guys have been great. Uh, when Hawk Harrelson won the Ford C. Frick Award, uh, he was tremendous, so much fun to talk to. Great stories. and he was exactly, in that interview, he was exactly the way you'd expect him. He was, um, he was actually the, uh, probably the only guy who ever cursed during one of our Hall of Fame programs. <laughs> Because um, that was just Hawk, you know. That was his style, and and he was a little bit outlandish. But he was very friendly, very appreciative of the fact that we took time to interview him and to focus on him. Uh, another um, guy that was uh, uh, been a lot of fun for me to talk to, and I've interviewed him now three times: um, once in person, once in the bullpen theater, and twice in virtual
2: programs. And that's Dennis Heckersley
1: and uh, he's he's become one of my favorites. Um, Such a down-to-earth guy, so much fun, willing to talk about anything. I remember I was interviewing him in the Bullpen Theater at the Hall of Fame, and I was trying to be diplomatic about why he'd been traded from the Indians to the Red Sox. Um, So I, I kind of diplomatically, you know, tried to broach the subject about the reasons behind it. And Eckersley, he comes out and says, well, the real reason was that um, uh, one of my teammates stole my wife. (laughs) And of course that was Rick Manning, who was the center fielder for the Indians. And he
2: had an affair with Dennis Eckersley's wife and led to Eckersley getting divorced. So it was an untenable situation in the Indians' club outs.
1: The Indians had to make a decision One of them's got to go, and at the time, they thought Banning was their center fielder for many years. He looked like he was going to be a gold glove outfielder and a pretty good hitter, too. Um, In retrospect, they ended up trading the wrong guy. They traded a future Hall of Famer, but that's principally the reason why Eckersley got traded. So here he was willing to bring up this episode, probably one of the most difficult situations of his career in, in many ways, um, kind of embarrassing, even though he did nothing wrong. And he was willing to talk about it. He brought it up. I mean, that, that just tells you how honest and forthright uh, he is. And he was also, he was so nice to me. I mean, after the interview, that, that first interview we did in the theater, um, you know, he actually complimented me and, and said he really enjoyed talking to me. And he thought my questions were great.
0: And, you know, as you probably know from doing interviews, that doesn't always happen. No. You know, um, whether you've done a good job or
1: not, a lot of times people don't say that you've done a good job. They don't thank you for, you know, researching their career and, and doing your homework. So for a Hall of Famer to take a moment to do that, I mean, that really, that really meant something. Uh, so... He's
0: another guy that uh, has become a real favorite of mine. Well, you know they loved uh, you know when he retired from uh, broadcasting with the Red Sox. I was amazed at at all of the people that came out and and said such great things about. It. I mean, I guess because I never really heard him announce. I'm you know maybe as a guest on some other game, but yeah, he he definitely uh, he must you know he must have that type of uh, feel about him. You know. Yeah, he he does. He's he's very honest, and uh, you know sometimes uh, that honesty isn't appreciated by
1: players. Right. There was that episode with the Red Sox a few years ago where Eckersley actually had very it was very mild on air criticism of one of the Red
0: Sox pitchers, Eduardo Rodriguez. Right. And uh, it was apparently uh, heard secondhand by the Red Sox players. One of them was David
1: Price. David Price then confronted Eckersley in front of the entire team, tried to embarrass him, um, and it, it was really, uh, uh, frankly, it was a disgusting thing uh, that yeah. happened that that, uh, that Eckersley had
2: to put up with. There, he was, and he to this day he's never received an apology from David Price for whatever reason the Red Sox uh, didn't mandate that they should have. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things when you become a broadcaster,
1: part of your job is to offer uh, criticism, not right. just praise. And, and the criticism that he that he made toward Rodriguez was so much. I mean, it wasn't a cheap shot. It wasn't insulting. It was a momentary comment, and it was accurate. Actually, the guy had been pitching poorly of late, and it was a complete overreaction by Price. And it just, it, to me, it shows, um, I guess it shows that players don't always understand that once you leave the game and you make the decision to go in the broadcast booth, you know, the fact that you were a player, that, that, that goes away. Uh, even if you're talking about, you know, your friends, even if you've recently retired, you now have to remove yourself from that and you have to try to be a little more objective. And that doesn't mean you have to rip into guys night after night, but if if players play poorly, especially if they make mental mistakes, as a broadcaster, you need to point that out. And um, it it is kind of amazing to me that a lot of the players don't seem to understand that. And I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of former players fail as broadcasters, because they want to remain friends. Right. They want to remain on the good side. Be friends with the players after you've retired, but now you know you're 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 a broadcaster. Maybe you're not a serious news journalist, but there needs to be some objectivity. There needs to be, especially if you're a color announcer. There needs to be some avenue of criticism. It's not just praise all the time.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess the uh, the homers. Remember, like with Bob Prince and you know a couple of uh, you know those type of announcers are you know. You know, not Well, I think the difference with those guys, you know, you think about a Bob Prince. Right. Or even if Phil Rizzuto. Right. And they were primarily play by play guys. You
1: know, Prince was not a color analyst. Rizzuto did some analysis, but he was always more of a play by play slash storyteller. Right. So yeah, that for for those kinds of guys it worked. But when you're supposed to be the serious analyst on a broadcast like a Bill White was or like a Dennis Eckersley has been in recent years, uh, I, I think you need to, it's a different standard. and uh, it, you, you need to be praiseworthy at times, but also critical at other times. Um, if the team's playing badly, you know, there's no reason why you can't say that. I, I think, you know, don't insult fans. Fans know when their team's not playing well. You know, if a guy strikes out four times, don't tell us about how great his four at bats were. Um, I think fans feel insulted when they hear that kind of stuff. You, you want some honesty from your
0: your color announcer, and I think that's one of the things that made Eckersley so good. And you know, unfortunately, he's you know, fortunately for us, he's made the decision to retire. He wants to spend more time at his home in the Bay Area, and I can certainly understand that. But I think Red Sox fans will miss him not being yeah. in the booth. No, That's that's the feeling I got, that they would. Um, oh, you know what I wanted to ask you about? And I don't think I'll ever, I'm sorry to say, I don't think I'll ever be, be out there for it because I'm not good with crowds anymore. But uh, what is induction day like in Cooperstown? That's got to be a madhouse, right? It can be. Um, it, it is one of the most, and fun days of the year, though. Oh, you know, I could We're a small town in Cooperstown. Right. We have 1,800 people who live here year round. Now, in the summer,
2: the local population does increase probably to 2,300, 2,400, but still a small town. Right. But on induction day, induction weekend, you know, you can have twenty, thirty thousand, forty
1: thousand 30,000, 40,000 people. <laughs> uh, I think last year. I know they announced the crowd at about 35,000. I thought it was closer to 50. certainly felt more like 50,000. The town was very busy that weekend, and the induction was well attended. And it it brings an energy uh, to this sleepy town in upstate New York, rural upstate New York. Uh, I love it. I think it's great. Uh you know, and of course I'm a baseball fan. So, you know, getting to see these hall of famers come back. Uh one of the things I do is I do some of the announcements on stage before the ceremony takes place. And then just before the ceremony begins, I'm actually backstage and I'm literally, you know, feet away, a few feet away from, you know, uh, Derek Jeter, Joe Torre. I remember one day I was, I was backstage, and it was still probably half an hour before the ceremony was about to begin. And I was talking to a friend of mine, John Horn, who works in the photo department. And, uh, you know, we were just, you know, talking about the ceremony coming up. And I remember I looked away for a moment, and then I turned back. And out of nowhere, Derek Jeter was standing next to me. Like, where did he come from? (laughs) He was literally like three feet away. Now, he wasn't there to talk to me, and, and he was actually, uh, I, think he had, I think he was talking to Jorge Posada. I think they had, Deer Jeter was um, inducted, and I think, uh, as I recall, Posada was backstage as well. Wow. Um, and a little bit later on, Joe Torre shows up, and, you know, again, I'm not really talking to them. I'm not part of their conversation, but these guys are, you know, surrounding him. Uh, we're Hall of Fame staff, and we're, we're just standing there. And in every direction, 360 degrees, there's one of these baseball immortals that's standing uh, near us. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
2: It's, a great, it's a great day. I, I always tell baseball fans, if you've never been to an induction, try to come to at least one. And it's not just the induction, it's the entire weekend. There's the parade right. on Saturday night, which is my favorite event of induction weekend. Um, there's um, there's other you know, there's other events
1: um, that um, that take place as well. There's the turn two uh or now it's called play ball with Ozzie Smith, the Double Day Field. Um, there's just all sorts of things that go on. Uh really it starts Friday and then it goes all the way till Monday. And there's just so many great people to talk to. You know, Pierre Gammons might be there, Ryan Kenny might be there, you might see Jason Stark, so Writers, broadcasters, former players, uh, and not just not just Hall of Famers, but you know other guys who are friends with Hall of Famers, guys who have been invited to attend the induction by one of the inductees that year. So that's a great that's a great part of it. But it's it's an awful lot of fun. Uh, You know, we as the staff at the Hall of Fame, we you know we basically put on the whole weekend. There's not an independent company that runs it. We basically you know put on these. Temporary hats and try to run uh, a major event like that. So it is a lot of work. We do
0: put in long hours, but it's almost always fun. It really is. Well, I think you might have convinced me. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to try to get up there, you know, for one. But you know, what was last last year? I you know I watched it on the uh, the MLB Network and everything. That ceremony was wonderful with the Leva and Cot and Big Poppy and, I mean. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, you guys did your normal great job and stuff, but, I mean, uh, to hear, like, Tony Oliva talk and, and Jim Cott, I mean, it was it was something uh, something memorable, you know. I thought Jim Cott's uh, speech was one of the best yeah. I've ever seen.
1: It was delivered
2: without notes. Yep. It was um, basically off the cuff. I mean, he'd
1: done some preparation. But literally, he did not have notes in front of him, and it was smooth. It went through just about every aspect of his career. He even talked about all the different catchers that he'd had during his years, I think, in Minnesota. Uh, it was tremendous. Um,
2: and of course, you know, he's uh, uh, been a great broadcaster. He's now, he retired last year from MLB, so he's not doing the announcing anymore. Uh, but he's one of my favorite uh,
1: broadcasters. Um, he, he's a guy that, uh, uh, you know, I used to hear on Yankee games, he did Yankee Cable uh, in, oh, the late 90s, early 2000s. And then he's, he's been on MLB Network now for a number of years. Uh, I really find him insightful, a great storyteller. And I had a chance to meet him in person uh, this, uh, this past fall. Uh, we did a program with him in the Grandstand Theater, and he was terrific. Uh, he's 83, uh, looks like he's about 63. Six foot four, uh, doesn't appear to have an ounce of bat on him. He always keeps himself in great shape and, uh, very sharp still all these years later.
0: Well, how long was his career? It had to be like 24 years, right? I mean, he was...
1: Well, yeah, he pitched, uh, you know, he pitched in, um,
0: I want to say he came up late 50s. Yeah, with the Washington Senators. Four I... decades. Yeah. Yeah, he pitched late 50s,
1: 60s, 70s. And then into the early
0: 80s, when right. he became a relief pitcher
1: with the Cardinals. Right, right. Uh, he was definitely over 20 years, something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and and was a guy, In you know, various points, you know, it looked like career might end. Uh, you know, he was released at one point, uh, early 70s. Uh, the Twins released him. Uh, Calvin Griffith um, let him go, probably partly for financial reasons. But he ends up going to Chicago, and he resurrects his career pitching for Chuck Tanner. Uh, then he goes to the Phillies, um, and he makes a transition of the bullpen. Uh, pitched a little bit for the Yankees, and then he goes to St. Louis, and became an important part of Whitey Herzog's bullpen
0: in the early 80s. So uh, a guy that really almost had three or four different careers, when you look at the, the different roles that he played and, you know, the the comeback that he had to make, but um, an incredible story of longevity when you talk about Jim Cotton, Oh, yeah. No, he reinvented himself, you know, like you said, several times. I mean, just going from to, you know, sometimes it I mean, starters aren't always able to uh, to make that transition to the bullpen. And he did it. You know, he did it fine. Definitely. Um,
1: a quick pitch. Uh, yeah. I think it
0: started when he went to
1: Chicago, uh, where he decided that he was going to um, pitch very quickly. Uh, he wasn't a hard thrower at that point. He really never was a hard thrower. He was more of a sinker-slider pitcher. But he decided that, I'm going to keep hitters off balance. I'm going to get the ball, and once I get it from the catcher, I'm going to get into my pitching motion quickly. And um, he would pitch a very fast game. Uh, you you time him it would be like six or seven or eight seconds between pitches well, nobody does that in baseball today yeah. but he did that as a way to upset hitters timing and it it ended up extending
0: his career well you know i, th- I think you know that i'm i'm good friends with uh, tom walker you know neil walker's dad and he told me about a game he pitched against jim Cott and uh he said it, it went like under two hours. <laughs> was—I mean, yeah. can you imagine under two hours a baseball game? I mean, nowadays, no way, no way would that yeah. that happen. And, and even back, even back
1: in the seventies, it was pretty rare to have a game under two hours.
0: Oh I mean, yeah, you know, games would be two fifteen, two and a half.
1: Um, but yeah, it, playing games in an hour, forty-five minutes, hour and fifty minutes. Um, it, probably
0: a good chance it was a Jim Cott game. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm sure there might be uh, some, some people listening to this that haven't been to the Hall of Fame, but you as, as someone who works at the Hall of Fame, what would you say is the must-see must thing that a visitor for the first time at the Hall of Fame should uh, should see? Is there anything in particular? Yeah, you know, there, there are three full floors of exhibits. Right. And I always advise people, if you've never been there before, and you really want to get a sense of what's
2: on exhibit, what the museum is about, give yourself three days. Not three hours, but three days. Okay. Because if you really want to go through the exhibit and, and read a lot of the text panels and get a sense of what the museum's about, you need to spend, you
1: know, minimum two days, but preferably three days to go through it all. You know, as far as essential exhibits to see there, um, I mean, for me, you know, I love the baseball card exhibit, which is our newest permanent exhibit that started in 2019. As you probably know, I've been an avid collector for many years, so I really love that one. Um, My favorite exhibit, though, is... um, along with the baseball cards,
0: is the exhibit called Whole New Ball Game, which is on the second floor. Okay. And it's baseball from 1970 to the current day. And that coincides with me growing up with the game. Uh, I started following baseball in 72, when I was seven years old. Okay. Um, So the way that exhibit is structured, the timeline,
1: 1970 to today, that's basically the span of my baseball fandom. So, uh, I love that exhibit. It's, it's, it's a very extensive exhibit. It's, there's a lot to see. It's very colorful. There's some, you know, the great uniforms of the seventies, the short pants used by the white Sox. One of the great things about that exhibit are these, there are these large
0: video screens. Oh yeah. No, and I they agree. Feature
1: great moments in, in, in baseball during the seventies. Cause that was really the, the first big television era and you can just punch up on the screen uh, all these great moments in baseball history mostly on field but occasionally off the field stuff and you can relive them you can watch you could spend all day just hitting those buttons and watching uh, the different highlights, you know, Derek Jeter's flip play, uh, the time that George Brett lost it, the Pine Tar game when he was called out by the home plate umpire—all, you know, all those great memories from the '70s and '80s and '90s—it's all there. So that—that's another great one. There's the Babe Ruth Room, which is on the second floor. Right. Uh, that's the first exhibit that the Hall ever put together that was focused on one. Player Babe Ruth, um, and was it was redone about ten years ago. Um, but it, it that exhibit has actually existed in different forms going back to the 1980s. So that's a long-standing exhibit. A lot of fun. There, there really is no more singular personality in, that epitomizes baseball any more so than Babe Ruth. Um, we can get into arguments about whether he's the greatest player of all time, but I don't think there's any argument that he's the most famous player that baseball has ever seen. And, um, of course, there's a Hank Aaron room also now up on the uh, third floor. Uh, that's terrific as well. Uh, his locker from Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium is among the many items that are up there. There's actually uh, bricks from the house, very modest house that he and his family grew up in. Uh, in the South, uh, you know, his, his parents were not well off. They were really poor, and they lived in a very small house. Um, and some of the bricks and porch posts from that house uh, survived. They were actually donated by Hank Aaron a number of years ago, so they're part of the exhibit too. So that's that's a great one as well. Um, so th- those are some of my favorites. And then the thing, we always recommend that people watch our, our film. We have about, it's about an 18 minute film called Generations of the Game. We kind of recommend to people that that's how you start your tour. Uh, we offer that uh, twice an hour uh, during the summer. And it kind of gets you into the spirit of baseball and baseball history.
0: Um, so that's a good way to start your tour. But there's, all sorts of exhibits. There's something for everybody. No matter what era of baseball history you're interested in, we've got something that covers that. Uh, and that's one of the great things about the museum. Well, you know, that's even, like like you said, you definitely have something for everyone. I mean, even the, uh, I forget what the, uh, uh, it, it's called, but the silver screen where you have, like, uh, the media, you know, with the Bud Abbott, you know, Costello, uh, and yeah, then who's, up, who's, on first? Yeah. who's on first. I mean, that's a classic. I mean, all, all the different movies, uh, you know, uh, the, I know I saw you had the uh, 42, you had, you know, the Jackie Robinson movie and, and, uh, you know, just, you know, that's a wonderful thing for the you know casual fan i mean someone who is maybe more familiar with uh you know baseball on film than the actual history but you're absolutely right about the uh, the one exhibit that you were talking about from the 70s 80s and everything when i was last the last time i was out in uh, cooperstown i would have to say that was the one place that was the most crowded you know it seems and and that's probably because uh, you know the age of the fans that are coming in, you know, like you yeah. said, would be beef from about that time. But um, so uh, as we get older,
1: you know, we're, uh, I'm in my fifties, and I think you're maybe around
0: the same age. Well, no, I'm sixty-five um, now, Bruce. <laughs> oh, <wow. I'm laughs> yeah. <younger>. yeah. Oh <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. We um, got that on tape too. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, that was your era, right?
0: The yeah. 60s and 70s. Oh, My yeah. My era was 70s and 80s. That's um, for sure. So, yeah, that's, that's what definitely appeals to us. Uh, there probably aren't many fans around from the 30s and 40s. Um, but even people that are interested in that, we, you know, we have a timeline of baseball history. You know, we have the paper Ruth exhibit. Uh, we have a World Series
1: exhibit that goes through the entire history of the ball and plastic. So, we can try to cover all eras of the game, uh, and, and also the 19th century. Uh, we have a, a room called Taking the Field, which is yeah. basically the 19th century and before. The roots, the origins of baseball in America, so even that's covered as well
0: you know what i want to add now that we clarified that you're doing a book on mike eastler how is that going i mean um you know can you talk about that or do you want to talk about it yet or sure yeah yeah we've been working on this for several years okay. uh, mike um called me on uh, uh must have been
1: five or six years ago and he had seen an article that I wrote about him and he liked it and, uh, asked me if I would be willing to work with him on his autobiography and of course I said yes. Yeah. Sure. So we've been working on that off and on, um, trying to, to piece together his, uh, his, his personal, uh, history. It's a different kind of book for me because I've never really written uh, with a player. His autobiography. I've always written in my words in my style. Right. And now you're 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 writing um, while working with a guy, uh, trying to write in his language from his perspective. Right. Um, and and that's uh, it's tricky. It's a little bit of a different thing. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Mike had a, you know, a major personal setback uh, late last year. His uh, wife, they've been married uh, since the early 70s, passed away rather unexpectedly. And um, that obviously, you know, changed priorities uh, uh, for a while. Um, but we're hoping at some point in 2023 to finish the manuscripts and then start shopping to different publishers. And, uh, you know, I would hope that maybe, uh, we'll see the book out 2024, maybe 2025. Uh, but it's a book that's going to trace his, uh, you know, life growing up in the Cleveland area, uh, uh, initially signing with the Houston Astros, bouncing around from organization to organization in his twenties and really not establishing himself as a, good major league player until his thirties. Uh
0: but he was part of that nineteen seventy nine team. Right. That won it all. And uh, had a great year. He and Lee Lacy formed that tremendous left field platoon in nineteen eighty, I think it was. Right, nineteen eighty. Uh, they got locked to publicity that year. That's one of the great platoons the game has ever seen.
1: Uh, so yeah. Uh Mike Mike's a great guy. He uh, he's a uh, hitting coach uh, he travels around the country, uh, does uh, hitting instruction, does inspirational speaking as well, and a guy that um, really persevered, could have given up the game at several different junctures, but refused to do so, and ultimately ended up
0: having a very decent major league career and winning a world championship as well. Was there anything uh, new that you didn't know about him, or something surprising that you found out while you're... You were doing your research.
1: Well, certainly his his growing up in uh, the Cleveland area.
0: Okay. Uh, the fact that um, you know he's
1: very he's very honest, but he was not a great student, and that he sometimes put more of an emphasis
2: on his athletic ability. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but he, you know, he was able to um, really I think overachieve in a lot of ways because. He was not a great defensive player. Uh, he, I think, was a, I want to say he was a pitcher and third baseman. And he didn't have a great arm, and he wasn't a great fielder. Um, and he didn't run particularly well. He never was a big base dealer. But he
2: worked really hard on his hitting technique, and he made himself into a very effective left-hand hitter, especially against right-hand pitching. Yeah player that is sort of disappearing from the game today, because teams are carrying so many pitchers now, 12,
1: 13 pitchers, that they don't have a lot of bench players. They don't have a lot of platoon players. The Mike Eastlers and the Oscar Gambles of the world, unfortunately, have disappeared, for the most part. Uh, but Mike Eastler was a really good player. Oscar Gamble was a really good player. They both could hit right-hand pitching. Uh, and you just you found a way to get them in the lineup uh even if they had shortcomings in other areas uh but Mike was very much an overachiever he was not a high draft choice he was not the most highly touted prospect uh when Pat Gillick who was scouting him for the Astros came to his house uh Gillick you know was um, was tough on him in, in telling him you know that he was not a great prospect and apparently
0: mike's mother was not very appreciative of that i guess not and uh gillick, gillick actually ended up apologizing during a follow-up meeting and did eventually end up signing eastler um but he was not a blue chipper
1: he was not a guy that people said oh he's going to be a star and he spent most of the 1970s trying to find his way he was in the Astros organization. He was with the Cardinals for a bit. He went to the Angels, the Pirates, the Red Sox. But then finally, you know, 79 and 80, he established himself as a key part of the, that those great Pirate teams.
0: Yeah. Um, and he was a backup on the 79 team and then uh, a very important player on uh, the 1980 team. So yeah. it's a great example of perseverance, uh, never giving up, and it ended up working out nicely for him. Well, I'll definitely get a copy, Bruce. So you got one sale there already. <laughs> I always like Mike. Okay. Hey, um, like you said, and, and like I know that you, uh, collect baseball cards. Now, what would you consider to be your prize possession? And what is your favorite card? Because a lot of times your prize possession might not be the, the absolute, you know, favorite. my most prized or valuable card is. Um yeah. I, I really haven't had them graded in a number of years. And grading the condition of the card has become so important in terms of value. So I'm not sure which it's probably one of my cards from the early seventies. I have a George Brett rookie, I have a Robin Yount rookie and I haven't checked their values in recent years, but I know at one time they they would you know draw quite a bit if they were in near mint condition. Right. Uh, so I don't know my most prized card, but certainly my favorite card, and this is not going to be uh, a surprise to you, yeah. is my 1972 Roberto Clemente tops card. Oh um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the base card. It's taken at Chase Stadium sometime in 1971, and it's the card where he's uh, is pre-game and he's he's flipping the ball. That's in midair. Yes, yes, I have that. <laughs> and, yeah, it, when you first
1: see the card, you might not even see the ball, but there is a ball
0: hanging in midair, yeah. and he's, he's flipping it up in the air. I uh, don't know if the top's photographer asked him to do that or if he just did that on his own,
1: but it's just, you know, Clemente at his coolest. Uh, you know, how many players would you see doing that, flipping a ball just very casually in a very cool early nineteen seventies manner. Um, it you know, it was one of the final cards of his career. And of course it was a card that came out um, you know shortly after he had put on that incredible one man
2: show in the seventy one World Series. Oh yeah. So yeah, that that is at the top of my list. And then probably his nineteen seventy three card which came out posthumously. Right. And it's one of the few action cards the Topps put out for
0: Clemente. Uh, that's probably my second favorite. Yeah. He was my favorite player. I have written about him. Um, a lot of people don't know that I'm um, half Puerto Rican on my mother's right. side. She was born in San Puerto Rico. His hometown, yeah. right? Or in he played home. in uh, San That's right. And yeah. I you
1: know I didn't know I actually didn't know that connection until my sister told me.
2: Many years later, she said, you know, yeah, uh, our mother was born in Santorse. Yeah. And I remember that that was Clemente's
0: first professional team in the Winter League. Yep, the Crabbers. So kind of interesting coincidence. So, you know, being half Puerto Rican, it's no, no surprise that he became my favorite player. Of course, I was very young when he died. And I've really, I've been a fan of his
1: mostly in a posthumous way since he passed away, but I've I've seen video of him, read books, um, you know, looked at his extensive file at the Hall of Fame and tried to learn as much about him. And there's seemingly always new things coming up, new photographs that I see on Twitter that I had not seen before that somebody snapped of Clemente along the way. Of course, he was, you know, the great looking guy, photogenic. He was 38 when he died. He looked like he was about 28. Uh, he was um, you know, just a remarkable athlete and humanitarian, and remains my favorite
0: player. So yeah, Bill Ver. That my oh. two favorite cards come from him. I, I know exactly what you mean. That you know, like he had passed away, thirty-eight. I know Bill Verdon had said that. You know, if he wanted, he says there was no telling how long Roberto could have played. I mean, he could have played into his 40s if he wanted to. I mean, you look, you look at him, he was a Greek Adonis. I mean, I have yeah. pictures of him, you know, like in the, I have a picture that he's in the, the, uh, the trainer's room and he's got one of, you know, that, that band thing that has the, uh, springs or something? And he's pulling it out in front of him and you look at yeah. the guy, he's just, he's, he's like a, a Greek god. I mean, he was, he was incredible. But, um, yeah. No. Um,
1: not that I know of. Uh, this was certainly, you know, pre-steroid era, so there was none of that going on. He, um, yeah, he was he was uh, perennially
2: youthful in the way that he looked, uh, just just remarkable. And uh, you know, I, I think realistically, he was going to play one more year. Yeah, uh, he had said he was going to come back for the 1973 season. He wasn't really sure beyond that. Right. But I think he would have played 73. And then people have asked me, what do you think he would have done after that? Some say, well, he might have been a manager, might have gone into coaching. I think he would have gone into politics in yeah. native Puerto Rico. Uh, he was very concerned about the poor and the underprivileged in his native
1: land. I think he might have, you know, tried to become... Uh, a mayor of a town, or some other political kind of figure. Um, maybe at some point he would have gone back to baseball and been a manager because he had done that in the winter league, and he did that successfully. Um, but I really do think he would have. Um, I think he
0: would have chosen a non-baseball path. I think that would have been at least for a while. That would have been his focus, and it would have. It would have involved trying to help the people of Puerto Rico in some way. Now, when you talked to, you said you talked to Al Oliver about Roberto. That must have been something, because I know Al, uh, really looked up to, uh, Roberto Clemente. Yeah, tremendous admiration. Uh, Al played, um, quite a bit of center field early in his career, so he was right next to Clemente in the outfield. Uh, he really looked
1: up to Roberto, um, I think modeled a lot of his behavior right. after Clemente, who of course was significantly older. Al came up in the late '60s when Clemente was toward the latter stages of his career. But there was a strong influence there. There's no question. And Al also looked Willie Stargell too, He oh, yeah. was also a role model to Al Oliver. So, yeah, there's there is definitely uh, a connection there. And it, you know, if you think about it, at one point uh not for a long time but that was their outfield you had sargell in the left oliver in center and clemente in right yeah and then of course
0: later oliver became more or less a full-time first baseman um and did play some left field too but he did play center field early in his career Can you imagine playing in the outfield and you've got <laughs> <to> <laughs> all <of> the right <laughs> and clemente to your left that's pretty good no you can't can't get much better than and that, that. <laughs> But, um, you know, you, you talk about, you had lunch with, uh, Willie and stuff. I mean, I, I've met, I've met and talked to so many people that were teammates of his. He was such a humble man. You know that? I mean, he really, I mean, his upbringing wasn't the greatest either, right? He came up, he, what did, where did he come up? Like in Oklahoma or, or was it Oakland? Oakland? Yeah, he, he was
1: originally from the
0: South the uh, south right? from, uh he was in oklahoma
2: uh well i guess that's more central but yeah um his family moved out to the bay area right. when he
1: was young so as i recall he grew up in the oakland area
2: yeah and um went through a lot of racism uh, in his career coming up in the 50s and early 60s you know playing in southern minor league
1: cities where the jim crow segregation was brutal uh being separated from your teammates in restaurants or hotels and when he played uh, you know there were times when there were no other black players on the team with him or maybe there'd be one or two other guys so they were kind of left out on their own yeah. they um you know it was sort of them against the world given what was Going on racially, and you know he had to he had to overcome a lot of that. You know, as did all the black players of that era. Um, but yeah, players, you know, the, the black players coming up in the fifties and sixties. Um, segregation in in the major league cities, because most of the major league cities were not in the deep south. Um, so it was a little bit better. No. But when you played in the minor leagues. If you went, if you played in a southern city, whether that was your home city or the road city that you were going into, uh, you were going to be affected by uh, the Jim Crow laws. Oh, yeah. And you were going to be separated. Uh, also, you think about spring training in Florida. Uh, that also uh, was a factor as well. Many times, uh, black players, well into the 1960s, they... They did not stay at the same, uh, hotel as the white players. They had, they found housing separately. Uh, so that, you know, it's amazing to me, you know, you're always told, you know, baseball is a team sport and you have to, you know, you have to, uh, meld with the other
2: players and play as a team. And here you start your season, you go to spring training and immediately you're separated from the white players. I know. And it's, talk about mixed messages. Of course, in many cases, the teams didn't have a choice because this was governed by local laws. And not a lot lot of teams were prepared or willing to fight that at that point. Um, But yeah, Sargell definitely um, dealt with that.
0: You know, you think about the unified 1979 team, which had a, a tremendous mix of white players, black players, Latino players. That was not the baseball that Billy Stargell uh, first entered into in the, in the 50s and early 60s. Completely different world. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, I, I, I read these stories and I just shudder, you know, when I think of... Uh, well, you know, it's funny, I read, you know, well, like you, you know, when you do research, if you look at um, the old newspapers, I mean... Th- some of the, you know, the way they talk about like uh, using like there was a time when colored was was a uh, an accepted way to talk about an African American player. I mean, you know, yeah. when when's the last time you've I I can't remember the last time I actually heard someone that you know that I knew that would say you know refer to somebody as that. It's uh, so. Uh, well, Bob, I remember doing. Research- Uh, the 71 pirates and there were a
2: few newspaper articles that actually referred to black players as Negro players yeah that's early 70s yeah Um, now it it wasn't as common as it had been in earlier years certainly you would have seen that term a lot in the 30s and 40s and 50s right but here early 70s you know we tend to think that's more modern
1: era sure uh, but that term was still being used in some newspapers and magazines. Uh, and it was still accepted, uh, by some, um, by some people. By, yeah. Obviously by the editorial staffs, and I guess it was accepted by some of the fans. But that was one of the things that really jumped out at me is, you know, you know, I think, I think of 1971 as, that's not the Stone Ages, right? Um right. but yeah, that was still, that, that kind of language was still being used. And uh, while the Jim Crow segregation had pretty much gone by then, um, you know, it, it was still there mid-60s, late-60s uh, after the Civil Rights Act had passed. Uh, yeah. Things didn't just end with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So right. players of that generation, uh, the black players, the Latino players as well, really came up under uh uh very difficult circumstances uh and it would it would start to change i think significantly in the 70s and 80s um and it would become better um not ideal but better um but yeah if if you, if you came up in the 50s and 60s as a black ball player uh, uh you faced uh, more obstacles than
0: just 90 mile an hour fastballs no that's true And they didn't wear helmets then either, (laughs) you know. When (laughs) that's right. (laughs) But uh, all right, I'm gonna be. Oh, you think about it. uh, Talking about helmets, just to uh,
1: diverge for a moment. Helmets did not become mandatory until 1971.
0: I know. Isn't that amazing? I think that might shock people. And it was grandfathered in. So if you were a player
2: that had worn a cap to the plate, you were a veteran, established player. Right, you could continue to wear a cap and not a helmet for the rest of your career. Right, you would have a protective liner under the cap, but you didn't have to wear the helmet if you didn't want to. Yeah. If you were a young player or a
1: rookie, yeah, then you would have to wear the helmet. But it didn't become mandatory until you know 1971. You know, fifty-two years ago. But again, it, I, you, I know you remember 71, and I remember
0: 1971. Right, right. Well, you know, it, it's funny if you think about it too with the ear flaps. I mean, I remember when in the late 60s that Carl Yastrzemski would wear an ear flap to protect his ear that was facing the pitcher. And there was a little criticism of it. You know, they, they were like, ah, you know, they, you know, I guess like I know, like Ralph Kiner said, a lot of the, the big um, uh, resistance that a, a lot of players had is they don't want to be thought of as, as, as a sissy. You know, and that was the old type ones. You didn't even have the ear flaps. I mean, uh, now you got like mouth, face plate, you know, the thing that comes out across the mouth and, you know, but, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine a major league player not wearing a, a helmet, just wearing his baseball cap. I mean, well, people didn't throw as, as hard back then. I mean, you didn't have like, uh, you know, Chapman or anybody like that back in the, Forties and fifties, you know. So. But you still, you still had guys that were willing to throw inside. Yeah, Sal Magley when you come up and in, If the
1: situation uh,
0: mandated it. Right, right. And,
1: and those helmets, while they were they were pretty good for the era compared to what they have today.
0: Yeah. The material that's used today, the extended flap that goes across right. the
1: mouth and yeah. then provides additional coverage. I mean, that's all new. I mean, the helmets today are so much better. Oh, that's than for sure. Those early, um, those, uh, the, I guess they really were still early helmets uh, that were being used in the 60s. Yeah. Um, certainly an improvement over the soft cap, but uh, nowhere
0: near the kind of protection yeah. uh, that we see in, uh, in baseball today. Um, yeah. You probably remember the last guy to go to the plate without a helmet was a backup catcher with the Red Sox named Bob Montgomery. Montgomery, right. Yes. I think his last year was 1979. He was Carlton Fisk backup. And he was the last of those players that had been grandfathered in. And his career finally ended. And he was he was the last guy to come to bat in a major league game without wearing a protective helmet. I think he ended up being a broadcaster too, didn't he, Montgomery or somebody named Montgomery?
1: Oh, yeah,
2: Mon-
0: long yeah? time broadcaster with the Red Sox. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay, I, I want to wrap it up, but before I do, I want to talk about. Uh, and I find this interesting. I haven't I haven't read it, either of the books, but um, you write books on horror films. I'd, and you know the the last one you wrote what is it hosted horror on television the films and faces of shock theater creature features and chiller theater I remember all of them I must have you know I'm gonna have to get a hold of that <laughs> How, what did you I guess you grew up enjoying that and that's why you uh you know you wrote those books or
1: uh, oh yeah and- There, Bob, is the connection to baseball, too. Um, Oh, okay. I grew up in the uh, New York City
0: area. I lived in Yonkers, New York. Okay. And we had an independent station, uh, WPIX Channel 11. Oh, yes. Married about 100 Yankee games a year. Right, right. So on Saturday, let's say Saturday night,
1: the Yankees were playing a night game. And they played a lot of Saturday night games back then uh, at Yankee Stadium, but also on the road. So you'd watch the Yankee game, and it would probably end around 11 o'clock. Because they started the games at 8 o'clock. So the games would end, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And what would come
2: on after the game was chiller theater. Oh, wow. The late-night horror showcase, Saturday nights, would run into the early morning hours Sunday,
1: and sometimes they showed one movie. Sometimes they showed a double header of movies. And they were films from the 30s, 40s, all the way up through the 60s and 70s. So that's what I grew up on: Yankee baseball, followed by chiller
0: theater. And anybody that grew up in the New York area might remember the six-fingered hand. That oh came out yeah. of the swamp. That was at the beginning of the show, and also during the commercial breaks.
1: Uh, and then the. Uh, They would, you know, they would show the hand during those commercials, uh, and then they would go back to the movie. And I spent many late nights, uh, watching those films. So that was another great interest of mine, uh, baseball and horror, two things that you might on the surface think have nothing
2: to do with each other, but there was that connection through WPIX Channel 11. So yeah, I'm a big fan of horror. Uh, I wrote the book that you mentioned back in, um, 2021, came out through okay. McFarland. Okay. Uh, interestingly, McFarland does a lot of baseball books, and they do a
0: lot of books about horror movies as well. So we have that in common. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They do a lot of books about cinema, uh, but uh, with a heavy emphasis on horror films. Uh, they have many.
1: Hundreds of horror titles that they've done. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, baseball and horror are two of their big genres. <laughs> uh, so they're the
0: perfect publisher for me. Yeah. No, that sounds great. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm actually working on a second book and, uh, I was, you know, the first thing I'm thinking, well, you know, it might be a slam dunk to go through the same the same publisher, but I was thinking of going to, uh, trying to to go through McFarland. How are they? They, uh, You know, how do you like them as public? Well, you must. You know, because... Yeah, they, they were actually the first publisher that I had submitted uh, a manuscript to. Okay. Um, they do, you know, they do a very professional job. They do a lot of editing. Uh,
2: they uh, are very good about Placing photos in the right parts of the book. Okay. You know, they don't just have a photo section in the middle, they Uh intersperse the photos, but they match up to the text. Okay. So if you're talking about a Vincent Price movie, there's a photo on that page from that movie. Nice. Um, But I was really impressed with their editing, Uh, they do a lot of fact checking, they gave me a chance to review the manuscript before it was
1: sent off to the printer so i i was very pleased now one thing I, I remind publishers you know mcfarland they do a very fine job and and i have you know I, I love what they've done
2: with the book but their primary market is libraries right
1: um they're not going to be a bestseller like uh, a major New York City publisher. They're based mm-hmm. out of Jefferson, North Carolina. Right. And their primary audience is uh libraries. Um so if you, you know,
2: decide to go with a, a publisher like Macfarlan, um your book is going to get out into libraries. But it's also going to depend a lot on your own ability to promote, do interviews, right. do signings. Um make contacts with bookstores and and try to find other places that would be willing to carry the book so right. um, I, like I said I've been very pleased with them I, I didn't go into this project with any expectation of becoming wealthy right uh, I didn't go in with any idea that I'm, you know, I'm gonna sell you know
1: tens of thousands of books um, my idea was to you know create a good book have it Published in a quality manner and have it get out to the people that are really fans of the genre. And um, you know, it's been about a
0: year and a half now, and I, I've been pleased with what McFarland has been able to do. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. The, yeah. The, keep the, them in mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the book I'm writing. Uh, well, it's I don't know if you know about it, but there's only been 11 father and son combinations that were ever drafted in the first round of the. Uh, the baseball draft, you know, the amateur baseball draft. So, um, I've been, well, I have a lot of, uh, content that, um, I'm actually going through editing with it, but, but it, it's gonna be something that, uh, you know, the, the baseball researcher or baseball fan is gonna be more interested in. It's not gonna be like a, uh, like you said, a bestseller or something. So I was thinking, yeah. I know that, you know, McFarland's more of a scholarly type, you know, uh, publisher. So, and like you said, library, and, and that's basically what I would want, you know, for that book. So I'm definitely going to keep them in mind then.
2: Yeah. All right, all right. You know, There are younger listeners out there, and I'm sure there, there will be. Yeah. Um, if you get into book writing,
1: you know, you might you might do very well. You, maybe you'll become the next Bill James. And, and maybe you'll become a best-selling baseball author. Um, more likely it is that you'll become kind of a niche author. Right. And you'll do it because you love it. And because you want to put out a quality product. And you want it to
2: get to the people that really love the subject matter. No. And that's going to matter a lot more than, you know, the royalties, the money, the advance that you might make
1: from right. um, that book contract. Um, so my advice to young baseball writers out there that are thinking about well writing baseball books, um, don't do it thinking of money first and foremost. Right. Um, do it because you love it. Do it because you want to write, because you love baseball and and maybe you want to see your name in print, that's kind of a nice thing too. Yeah. Um but, you know, do it because you enjoy it, you love it, and you take pride in it. And you'll, you'll hope that it does find its its niche audience, um, as opposed to being a bestseller
0: that's going to make you a millionaire. Those those bestselling millionaires are few and far between. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. All right, Bruce, I'm going to wrap it up. I want to thank you so much for taking this time. And it's always great to talk to you. And I love talking baseball. So this, this was a wonderful way to spend my uh, Thursday evening. Well,
1: I I enjoyed talking to you as well. Um, We we covered a lot of ground
0: here. uh, But, yeah, I
1: had a lot
0: of fun with it. I really enjoyed it, Bob. All right. Well, you have a great evening, Bruce. And um, I'll be up at the Hall of Fame after the winter. I don't want to drive up there when. (laughs) Okay. All right.
1: Well, hey, I hope you you feel better and uh, stay
0: in touch. Okay, Bruce. Thanks a lot. Okay, Bob. All right. Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From the Tree. If you have any questions about today's program or are interested in ordering our book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball." you can contact us at rvh1971 at yahoo.com. In the words of the famous baseball owner Bill Beck, this is a game to be savored and not gulped. There's time to discuss everything between pitches or between ends.